Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Attorney Sonia Madison. I get to come to you live from beautiful Tahiti, uh, the weather is warm. I figure I sit out on the beach and enjoy a little bit of it. And you look like you're kind of cold there, Sonia. <laughs> I was going to say you would be believable if it not been but for the sweatshirt that you have on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of the hoodie gives it away, though, huh? Well, you know, I'm always so cold nature. It's not quite as as warm here in Tahiti as I expected that it would be. Plus, I wanted to avoid the sunburn. <laughs> it is cold in the South. You know, we're not yes. used to having to bundle up so much. I know, that's right. I'm I'm just glad to that it's not as cold as it is a little bit further in the North and the Midwest. Cincinnati, my hometown, as you're aware, is covered with snow this weekend and Apparently, the roads are still bad after a couple of days. And uh, <laughs> already, well, I tell you, our viewers immediately come on <laughs> talking about who they <laughs> Cincinnati. Did you mention Cincinnati now? Of course, it's who they, who they nation. But that's all right. It's all right. I do want to point out this some is. Some people, they really are like, who are they? Where did they come right. from? Right. <laughs> Whatever. Who's this? The, uh, uh, the Braves, Falcons. Uh, Falcons, Falcons, Braves. I'm just uh, <laughs> thinking about baseball, my bad. You guys play flag football, though, right? Is that what it is? The flag hate football? is real, isn't it? Is, the hate uh, is real on Black History Month. <laughs> <laughs> we started out right, y'all. Happy Black History Month to all of you. I feel proud. I went out and supported some black businesses this past week as well, just because it's Black History Month. No, just because I really wanted some good pizza. <laughs> the first and time for out- that's sad. Sad. The first time. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Slim and Huskies in Nashville, Tennessee. Slim and Huskies. Oh, I think you probably you guys might have one down in Atlanta. Yeah, too. we have. Of course, you know we got one. No, I know it's starting natural, though. I'm not going to exactly. take that away. But, I mean, exactly. of course, they said we got to go to the A. <laughs> you always got to follow what happens in Nashville. You guys you guys uh, like to follow, but that's good. It's good to have a <laughs> group of followers. The hate is real. Right? No. No hatred. Hey, I, I, hate I, is I love... real. I'm sorry. We have a black mayor. What, what y'all got going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> what we have going we on is gerrymandering. <laughs> We've got gerrymandering going on where they're actually divided. Davidson Davidson County was the one blue area in Tennessee, and they just divided it up so that it will no longer be blue. And which is it's just despicable how they've done that. So they've they've even stolen that from us here in Nashville. Black people, we gotta get out and do something. This is Black History Month. Let me let me let you know. We gotta start making some history as some black folks here. We need to get out and make historic votes because these Republicans are no joke. I see the Supreme Court in uh North Carolina shot down some of the gerrymandering attempts that they did in North Carolina uh, that the Republican-led legislature redid. I think Ohio's got shut down. Um, A couple of other states are still right now either going to the U.S. Supreme Court or to their local state Supreme Courts. They are trying to take over. They are literally trying to take over, literally trying to silence our voices, silence our votes, and uh, we have to we have to just scream louder. That's all it means, I guess. I mean, that's so true. It'd be nice if um, we get the first black female Supreme Court justice this month. I did want to point out my black on hoodie. Um, <laughs> Your black what? On hoodie. This is from a black owned um, store. What does it? Oh, it doesn't my say black owned on it. 
You well, just got it. It's called Actively Black. That's the um, brand. But it Actively is from uh, Black, huh? Actively Black, yes. Well, that's um, good. If you have to announce that you're being actively black, I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> what's the problem. No, no, no. I really am black. I am. I am black. I promise. I mean, but my viewers already know that you instantly know as soon as I talk. Oh, yeah. She, she's not only black physically, but she is actively <laughs> promoting black people. And, and what black does what does black sound like? I'm sorry. You sound like Betty White in that one movie. Uh, uh, Mr. Officer, I think I hear Negro. Well, I said my content. You always go to the. You said as soon as you started talking. Yeah, and I speak out on issues that concern black people and black agendas. That was what I was saying. Oh, so that means we have to listen to you first to determine it. (laughs) I mean, I think we all should listen. Look at No, you said as soon as you start talking. You said as soon as you open your mouth. We're talking about actively black. Actively. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I appreciate you word. being actively it's black an instead word, of passively. Yeah, don't be passively black. <laughs> don't be passively <laughs> black. I don't know that that's possible, but but you know it's interesting that it, you say that because you know uh, Mitch McConnell the other day, and and it's kind of one of the I guess good and bad things about Black History Month is that um, it, it's good and that to some degree it's a reminder to Americans that we as Black people are part of American history. So let us reiterate <laughs> what we've done to contribute to this wonderful country that we live in. But um, but then on the flip side is, is the means where people tend to say, oh, that's only Black history. That's not American history. And as we saw Mitch McConnell a couple of weeks ago say that essentially, oh, well, the numbers for Black voters went up compared to American voters. And you're like, sorry. Why? <laughs> when was I not American? <laughs> uh, right, exactly. So, Oops, you know, definitely did that come out? A reminder that this is American history. Uh, we're just reminding you that we are part of American history and <laughs> we've contributed yeah. accordingly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're slipping. All kinds of stuff slipping out nowadays. So <laughs> we're like, oh, I didn't mean to say that out loud. I'm in mixed company right now. So. As you may have saw earlier today, the uh, Republican National Committee has ruled or voted to censor um, mm-hmm. Representative Cheney and I think it's Kissinger. Yes. Because they are choosing not only to be involved in the January 6th committee, but they're again promoting the truth that Trump <laughs> lost the election. I mean, God forbid that ever <laughs> happens. You're promoting the truth? Oh my, don't do that. You're a Republican. <laughs> Which, I mean, again, it's, it's baffling. Like, wow, you are guys are, are going to censor two people for being an advocate of truth. Wow. Okay. Hmm. That, that's where we are. <laughs> it's been a week of wow things, uh, particularly coming from Republicans saying things. I think, uh, who was it? Uh, Senator John uh, Kennedy. John Kennedy uh, wound up saying, regarding the the nomination of a black woman to the court. This was highly offensive to me, frankly. Uh, But he said, we want someone who who understands the difference between a law book and a J. Crew catalog. I'm like, really? Is this what this this is where this is what it's come to, where you think that there is not a qualified black woman in this country who knows the difference between a law book in a J. Crew magazine. Now, granted, of course, he he understands what that means, but it was so slanderous, and it was intended to be unabashedly slanderous that uh, he should be censored for that. Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> and then he went further on to um, talk about we don't want some Supreme Court justice up there trying to push all of the, her left wing woke agenda. <laughs> you don't want somebody to talk about justice about the injustices that you don't want a justice to talk about injustice in america gotcha let let me understand what is it that they should be talking about should they only be talking about the things that make you feel comfortable should they only be uh looking to listen to cases now granted one one black woman judge on on the bench of six other conservatives and you know one other one or two other liberal judges it's not going to be much much awokeness going on on that bench in the first place so i don't think he has to worry too much about that 
But the mere fact that he would open his mouth, have the audacity to go out and say something like that without fear of repercussion is amazing to me. Somebody thinks that you should be appointed to the Supreme Court. And then we definitely be talking about reality television. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to say I can't tell the difference between a law book and a J. Crew magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, John Kennedy doesn't want you on the bench. Is what he's saying. Long and short of it. (laughs) And we laugh, but uh, to me, first of all, let's not even talk about the fact that uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett has little to no qualifications. If we're going to do the do that in terms of being uh, someone who has written several judicial opinions, someone who has been on appellate courts, someone who has tried cases. I mean, she would be little to no qualified other than the fact that she went to law school and, and has a law degree and, and passed the bar. So we'll, we'll put that aside for now because we know it's, it's the underlying bias. But what's even, as you said that, you know, what came out this past week was um, Justice Gorsuch, another person on the Supreme Court, who has spoken to the Federalist Society behind closed doors to, again, speak on political issues that are very biased and um, tend to continue to divide us. And yet, no, we're not yelling outrage over that. I mean, when you talk about the Supreme Court, there's supposed to be nine impartial justices strictly about enforcing the Constitution of the United States. And so when you have a justice who goes behind closed doors, refuses to have um, any members of the press, press present in a, in a Federalist meeting, which for those who don't know, the Federalist meeting is the far conservative group. Um, they go far right wing and they often try to influence who gets on the court. But, but to that happen, and you're okay with that, but then when we talk about the black woman or black person in general, general there's an assumption of some far liberal agenda or far pretty much pro-Black agenda that you don't now all of a sudden have an issue with. I mean, no one yells hypocrisy, right? I mean, it's it's astounding. (laughs) It it continues to astound. And and that isn't to say that it continues to be surprising. It just continues to be a reminder that, first of all, we still have a long way to go in this country, assuming that we are trying to head in that direction. One one of our viewers says, what about the bill that was passed in Florida where it is illegal to make white people uncomfortable? I'm not sure which <laughs> bill she's referring to. But. <laughs> well, I meant to say, speaking of, considering that it's Black History Month, there are a lot of teachers asking, one, that it's not being taught in schools, and two, certain books be pulled uh, yeah, all months this month from having discussions in schools. So basically, back to that bill. Um, I have a right not to make sure my child is uncomfortable when it comes to the truths of this country. And I know we've talked about this before, but if we don't speak out about what's happened, history is only going to repeat itself. But isn't that what they want for history to repeat itself? Isn't that the whole point Clearly. of making America great again? <laughs> <But> they- <laughs> we want history to repeat itself. Uh, what well, this, this is unfortunate because um, I'm wondering, like, I, I thought this the other day. I said, if we were the uh, children, of, if if our conservative friends who are now arguing against teaching certain truths about Black history and trying to pull the curricula, some certain books out of the curricula, because it's offensive and or it makes other people feel comfortable about uncomfortable about their history. I wonder what they would have done if they were the children of Israel. So what happens is that, you know, with the Jews and the children of Israel, they passed down the story. They told every story from generation to generation to generation so that you would never forget all the way that the Lord brought you from. And and these are Christians who are now saying, we don't need to talk about this thing. We don't need to talk about you know, how we, because they, you know, the, the children of Israel has a long history of disobeying God and uh, doing things that were unpleasant and that were displeasing to God that wound up causing them to uh, suffer some punishment, enslavement, captivity, you name it. They talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly. But apparently in America, American evangelicals, Christians who are who are saying, you know, we don't need to talk about you know some of the bad of our of our past even though it helped to shape us to where we are today 
um, we don't need to discuss those things. All we need to do is talk about how glorious the past was and how infallible and how righteous we have been since the institution of time, or at least since the founding of this country. Uh, that That's concerning to me because, like you said, history will eventually repeat itself. So I guess it becomes incumbent upon us to begin to tell the story in, in certain environments. Maybe do we need to start looking at having uh, separate services? Do we need to? I saw a woman uh, talking on Good Morning America uh, yesterday, I believe it was in the morning. She was talking about teaching our children about finances, and she was really talking about educating black students about finance and about economics and investing and, and money management interest rates. And she said, these things aren't being taught in the school. And we especially have to be able to teach these to our black children who, uh, as you're aware, we have this huge wage gap as well as a wealth gap, an 18 to one wealth gap in America. And I think they said something by 2053, the average black family will have zero net worth if things continue on in the trends that they're in right now. So we have to start teaching um, our children and we have to, I think, take on the responsibility. I know you never liked the idea to say we shouldn't have to teach white children, but I guess white people about blackness, but maybe we need to teach black children about, would you agree that we need to teach our black children about U.S. history and how blacks were involved in that history? Well, first of all, I do think we teach our black children about U.S. history, <clears throat> but if you're talking about economics and if you're talking about wealth and all that, that's something that we're still working to attain. That's something that we're still trying to understand. It's, it's, you know, I know we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail, but one of the arguments that I hear constantly when it comes to the NFL, uh, and the lawsuit that's come out, is why is it that black people feel like they need white people? Why is it that you are asking an employer to consider you versus you starting your own? Um, why isn't it that Black people aren't hoarding their resources together so they can be an owner of a NFL team or they can start their own franchise? And the thing that, to me, I'm constantly, from my perspective, reminding people, or at least what gets lost in that is, again, if we've got... And this is just say for the NFL, for example, if they have been in existence since the 1920s and, you know, even maybe even before that, they have had decades and decades to accumulate wealth so that by the time we're here in the year 2022, I mean, it's going to cost you well over four billion or so to, to be an owner because they've, they've saved that generational wealth because needs to get passed on. And so we don't even get involved until around the 19, I think they said we was integrated in the 1940s to the NFL, but the owner, an owner or an eligibility for owners except for maybe the 60s or so, we've lost 40 years plus, you know, of wealth that we do, you know, to, to even try to catch up. And so from that mentality, and again, that's assuming we even know how much it costs, how to get the access and all that. And so, you know, if, if, if we're talking about, of course, Black history, yes, please teach your, your children that not only are, are Black people part of American history, but the contributions that have been made, as well as some of the barriers that have hindered such. But at the same time, when we're talking about economics and weapons, I do think we need to teach them. But at the same time, we also have to understand that we're still learning that ourselves. And, and to some degree, we may have to make up new rules. And, and perhaps I know we're, that's one of the arguments, whether integration hurt us more than it helps us. But we, we may need to consider whether or not being part of the main group is, is too more, again, our, our benefit or detriment. So question for you, then, if we if we're behind the eight ball and um, should be doing more proactively, how much of that is our fault? How much of that is blame is to be placed on our shoulders. I mean, first of all, I don't think, I, I'm definitely not going to put even the majority of it on our fault. I mean, because again, we try, you, you, and that's why, again, studying history is what I emphasize, history, period. It's so important because if you look at the Tulsa massacre, you see that we tried and then you blow it up for, for us. I mean, there are so many, you know, institutional barriers in our judicial system and our executive issue and our legislative system that breaks us down or, or 
places hinders hindrances on us, even as we are trying to build our own. And so to that question, hey, we have tried, we have seen in history, particularly if we studied many instances where communities of Black people were thriving and successful, but within an instant was taken down, whether it be by violence, massacres, or even something like a bank refusing to give further access to a loan, um, or people refusing to sell certain property to, to Black people. Those are all tools used to ensure that we do not accumulate a certain amount of, of wealth. And I'm not going to put that as our fault when we try and subsequently are killed for the process. Okay. So I will, I will agree that there are systemic factors that, <clears throat> that do limit our ability to uh, create this wealth and pass it on for generations to generation. But as I told you before, there was some statistic, I think it was 2053 or something like that, that they would say that the, the average black wealth will be zero. Right now it's $24,000 or something like that. The ag- average net worth of a black family is $24,000 compared to like 180000 for the average white family. How do we lose, if we stay on this trajectory that we're on, how do we lose wealth and it not be our fault? Now, I get that... Um, that there have been some historical things that put us off on a bad footing. You know, with the GI bills, it was all given to white people, but it was never really given to any black soldiers. And so those white people were able to buy a house for $14,000 and sell it for $300,000 and pass that on to their children. Got that. And I get that. Now, uh, it certainly put us at a deficit in our start. But the question is, is I mean, the issue is, is that there have been laws that have been instituted and changed and anti-discrimination laws that now we have the opportunity to take what little bit that we have and make it grow. I think not only do we have the opportunity, we have the responsibility to take what little we have and to cause it to grow, hopefully exponentially. But the projection is, is that we're not causing it to grow. It's actually decreasing over the next 20 years. Millennials, I think it's just, and I don't know if it's separated by race, but I would imagine that it's even worse for a lot of the blacks, a lot of blacks. Uh, (coughs) Millennials will be the first generation to have less money than their parents, to have less net worth than their parents did. And and I understand also, I, I can't remember what, what the exact statistic was, but I think it's the same situation for for blacks. When opportunities were made available to blacks for the first time, many of us started taking advantage of those things. And now we've become complacent and we don't take advantage of those. A friend of mine sent me a video. Maybe it'll sum it up this better this way. In the video, he said, tough time makes strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make wake, make weak men. Weak men make hard times. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle that we seem to be in. So we're, we're getting back to the point where we're going to have, as a people, hard times because our foreset, forefathers and our ancestors or parents or grandparents are the ones who actually make good times for us. And we didn't know how to carry on that good time. Where's the responsibility on our part if it's if it's actually on a traje- trajectory to actually worsen for us? You know, and I, I'm going to go back to the NFL because only because it's, it's fresh on my mind. I've had to do a lot of history on this, <clears throat> but in preparation for today's uh, podcast. But one of the things they point out is this Rooney rule, which I think is what you're talking about when you say there have been laws and, and certain initiatives taken in order to give us access. And so one of the issues is this Rooney rule was started back in the early 2000s after pretty much you got John and Cochran, several black people came together and said, hey, clearly the NFL is, is racially biased. Clearly you're not letting us become leaders and owners and managers of, of this franchise. And we're going to call you out on your racism. And so the Rooney rule is starting and it is started, I mean, honestly, it was named after a, a white guy who said, okay, why don't we try this? And, and essentially, it says if you're going to hire for the, particularly a head coach position, you have to interview at least one Black candidate. And I think it's now increased to two. And this, again, back in the early 2000s. And, and since then, there have been at least 15 head coaches. It's according to the lawsuit, so definitely quick and thorough. 
but there have been at least 15 head coaches, head coach positions um, received or given to, or should they give it to, but pretty much hired into for, by, for black head coaches. At this current point in time, there's only one black head coach. So, and that's why I said, I thought of, I'm thinking about it because you're, you're saying, hey, you know, there was an opportunity and we're, we're supposed to grow and have more. And at least since this started, there's been 15, but currently there is only one. And so the issue is, is that our fault? Because you're saying, what, is, what responsibility do we have to then make sure that there are more Black head coaches? We as, as I guess, the marginalized community, when essentially here, we've got one. And so the trajectory, maybe he is going to come down to zero. Um, and I'm, of course, in looking at this lawsuit, just because, and that's why there's still systemic racism has to be happening, just because there is that bill or there is that legislative um, intent or there is an actual passage of law, does it mean that in practice, it is going to make a difference? And if anything, we have harped on this frequently. We have seen so much progress since um, the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title VII. We have seen a lot of Black people get into some of these positions of employment. Of course, 15 to grow, hopefully more management. We've seen Black CEOs of, of big companies. But we've also seen since, the, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, a regression. And we've seen a, an uproar of a lot of anti, I should say anti, a lot of hate groups that are then not only influenced in politics, but we're, we're talking about the first Black Supreme Court justice. And we've got half the Republican, not even half, the Republican Party say that that person's not going to be qualified. As, as a means to, to refuse us that position. And so, I mean, I know you're saying we have accountability and I'm not saying that we still have a responsibility to at least take advantage of that um, avenue that's been given to us to continue to educate ourselves, to continue to grow to the best of our abilities. Yes, of course. But I'm also saying if you have any belief that again, a system that has been built for decades and decades that includes, hey, marginalized communities build this country for us for free and they don't ask for anything like continue to be settled in your low socioeconomic status while we continue to hoard over you that mentality has not changed as long as that mentality is there there's only going to be so far they're going to let us see and as soon as we start peeking over as soon as that president obama comes up it is it's a hoarder of other people saying wait a minute y'all gone too far you were only supposed to get to this level. You're now seeing up here, I gotta bring you back down so that you know your place. And we've got, again, with this lawsuit, the NFL is essentially saying that, not essentially, they have said, we have no racial, uh, or we deny the allegations in there, we treat everyone fairly. There are no uh, racial issues here. When, again, we see, and, and, and I, I also say that to say that is the response, but I'm also saying, I, I see again that the majority of the players on the field are over 70% black. And yet the leadership, the management of the organization, there are no black owners and there is one head coach. Are you telling me that my eyes <laughs> are deceiving me and fooling me and I should only listen and hear to what you're saying and ignoring what is actually presented? Well, I hear you on that. <clears throat> one of our <laughs> listeners, one of one of our viewers makes a comment. They said, we're learning as we go. But the more we learn, the more leaders want to keep us from learning. And they referred to uh, the how we've learned about Juneteenth. And as soon as it became a national holiday, you got the powers that be want to keep the truth of our nation from being taught in schools. Um, I, I get that, and 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 I hear what what I'm hearing. What you're saying is that there are ways to to maneuver around the law. The law is there, but the practice of that law or the 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 reality of the practice may be different. And you can always find ways to skirt around the law to be able to effect the eventual outcome that you want, and that is to stop people from from black people from getting ahead. I don't know. Uh, I, I agree. I agree that that happens. I was listening to uh, Hugh Jackson, who was a um, uh, a head coach, a black head coach 
Um, and I guess he's he's made some tweet this week or something like that to the extent that when he was coaching for the uh, Cleveland Browns, that a similar thing that happened with him, as was mentioned in the lawsuit. And it's not that he was paid to, to lose games, but when he started telling his story, I thought, man, this is really deep and really conniving how they would do that. So <laughs> it seemed as if they hired him. And in order to, and, and I, he didn't tell the whole story. He didn't give all the details. He said some of this stuff is, will be coming out shortly. But he said in order to incentivize a four-year contract, he um, was basically placed in a situation dictated by the owners whereby his team would lose. And they would continue to lose. And I think he probably had won one season. He won one game and another season and won three games. And it was contrary to what he wanted to do, but they would never implement the things that he wanted implemented. And he was concerned that it would not only impact his career, but the careers of his other coaches. And even for that matter, the careers of other black coaches who would come after him because of the mechanisms that they set in place to ensure his failure, his failure would actually be their benefit because in two ways, one, because they could say three ways, really one, they could say we hired a black coach Two, they can, they can, uh, if the team is doing poorly, they can get higher up in the draft three, <clears throat> they can, um, actually create a bad, reputation for black coaches. Well, we tried everything we could try to help him be successful. And that was actually their response to some of his comments this week. There's been no other coach that that I've tried worked as hard to make successful than has been Hugh Jackson. And it was had so much racial undertones to it to say he's you know, these black people just aren't cut out to be good head coaches. We tried, we tried, we tried and look at the record that he produced. I don't doesn't make a strong argument for hiring another black coach after that. And it and I thought it was said that's so manipulative that is so uh devious to have such a plan like that and effect it so that you it's almost genius though. It's almost diabolical. It's almost a diabolical genius that you would have this plan and reap all the benefits of it and to destroy another man's life and career in the process. Well, and, and so so that people are up to see with what we are talking about, uh, Brian Flores sued the NFL, Denver Broncos, Miami Dolphins, uh, I think New York Giants is in there. Um, but again, pretty much the NFL because of, of racial discrimination. And among many things, he is saying that um, for the most part, Black people in, in terms of hiring and retention in the NFL are treated unfairly because of the race. He is attempting to make it a class action um, under the guise of all Black head coaches, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, um, quarterback co coaches, general managers, um, and, and even any candidate seeking to um, getting any of those positions. Now, of course, the problem with class actions is one, getting enough people to consent to the class. Here, he's saying there should at least be 40. Um, typically, you need to at least about 20. So whether he gets that, it's going to be, like I said, difficult. We've already gotten some offensive coordinators, Black offensive coordinators that have come out saying that they do not feel that they've been treated unfairly. And we know people, and when it comes to the NFL, to some degree, it's probably like a mob mentality. So you, you speak out against the godfather, you're going to lose your job. So I'd imagine there's some fear there. So, um, but also if he doesn't get the class action, it's gonna be harder for him to use some of the evidence that he would like to use, but I'll expand upon that as we continue to talk it, to support his claim. So anyways, he, he introduces the lawsuit, which I find it very interesting because to me, the complaint reads more like an opinion than, than a complaint. And mind you, you know, I've read several complaints, although I'm much younger than Dr. Williams. They're and mostly on Google, too. <laughs> <laughs> They're mostly on Google about your service, but okay. <laughs> We've got a couple of them here in our feed, too, by the way. <laughs> I just haven't read those for you yet. <laughs> just um, kidding. You're but, wonderful. Uh, 
but he starts with a play with text messages from Bill Belichick that essentially says that, um, hey, congrats on the position for the, I think it was the New York Giants. And he said, what are you talking about? I have a, my second interview in a couple of days. And he's like, oh, um, my bad. <laughs> it wasn't meant for you. <laughs> and um, it was meant for. Right, got the wrong Brian. <laughs> wrong know, Brian. Sorry. Brian the bomb. <laughs> and he, what's even funny is Bill signs it, BB. <laughs> like, not only are you <laughs> admitting that, hey, you're about to waste your time. But in case you didn't know who this was, this is Bill Belichick, <laughs> who, know, who knows all. <laughs> so he starts the lawsuit with that and then goes on a history lesson. And considering, and, and, and even in that history lesson, he marks that I am fouling this on the first day of Black History Month to, as, a, as a homage to all the civil rights leaders that are going to be honored this month who have done so much in improvement of um, Black people in, in America. So there's definitely some strategic um, and mentality as it, as it comes to that. I think also because he knows he's probably not going to get the class action. And, and quite honestly, what happens a lot of the times is people are, particularly in, in like the NFL, if you're part of a union, which for the most part employees are, they're going to make you go to arbitration. So it, it, again, strategically is let me go to the public voices out there so I can get people to join the class. And then we can have a class action lawsuit, but probably knowing he's not going to get that, he still wants it out in the news so that there's a lot of public outcry. And considering, again, this is the weekend that's off for some of the football games, the Super Bowl is next weekend. This is all we're going to be talking about until the Super Bowl next week. Um, so there's definitely some strategies in there. But again, if you want some history lesson, lesson on the NFL, it's, it's quite a, a few stuff in there. But some of the things he points out is there are 32 owners of the team. No one is, none of them are Black. 70% of the players are Black. One of 32 teams has a Black coach. Four of the 32 teams have offensive coordinators that are Black. 11 of the 32 teams have Black defensive coordinators. Eight of the 32 teams has a Black um, special teams coordinator. Three of the 32 teams has a Black quarterback quarter coach. And six of the 32 teams have a Black general manager. And he using all that to say, essentially, the NFL is a plantation on which 70% are the workers in the field hands, i.e. the players, and none of them are in leadership positions. What, what do you even think of that, of that analogy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that's a reflection of America, period, bottom line. And that's the way that that's the way that it is. It's not surprising. Uh I don't disagree with it. It's it's what we've seen historically happen. And nothing happened. The the plantation just had a different color green. That's all. Now it's got white <laughs> lines drawn on it. So <laughs> hey, there is a uh, there is a, a, a viewer made an interesting comment. I want to get to that too. She says, "When we when we take one hundred percent responsibility, we will have pooled the resources, pooled creative ingenuity, and pooled forward motion. So it is as with other ethnicities." Learn and pass down Jewish, Asian, and other ethnicities. Ethnicities pulled together to teach their children on Saturday, uh, and there's more solidarity in their communities. Do you think that we do that less frequently than other communities? And if so, why? You know, I hear often, and it cringes. I cringe when people say this because um, it, it's. I guess to me, is not as much as I feel my experience is maybe some others. So I'm only speaking for Sonia Madison, the black person and not black people in general. Um, but I do hear frequently that we as black people don't help our own. However, I feel like at least again, for me, I feel like a lot of people have come and helped me and supported me as it came to starting my own practice, it came to going to law school, as it, even, you know, being, and in high school, I felt like I received a lot of support. I was in the Girl Scouts, I was in church, and I felt like people rallied behind me to ensure that I was successful. Um, of course, even as I, as I, in my adult, you know, years, yes, there's a lot about economics that I don't know or didn't realize I needed to know because again, it's all new. 
but I feel like once I know that, okay, this is something that I, I want to learn about, I figure out who has some information and I, I've yet to have someone blatantly say, I will not give you anything. Now, whether or not that person is going to then say, let me mentor you and, and open the door for you and do all that, you know, probably not so much as much, not, not so much as much. And so, and so I do think we need to be better at mentors. But I also understand being a mentor requires active work. And I only say that to say, because we, again, you're going to see this in any population, even among white people, if it's not their own and by their own, meaning their, their children or whatnot, they're not looking to go mentor someone from a low economic neighborhood who even is white to ensure that they have the same opportunity and resources that they do. I mean, Again, you see a, a, the Donald Trumps of the world who are still out trying to make sure they are substantially more wealthy than even some of their white counterparts. And so, um, so I said to say, you know, yes, I do think we can do better at mentors, but I also do not feel like we are completely a crabs in a bucket mentality. I don't feel like that we're purposely trying to ensure only one person exceeds in an industry or an area. What are your thoughts? I, do, I agree with you. I think that, <clears throat> I think we have changed a lot over the, I'll say over the several years that I've lived and have observed some things. There were things that, <clears throat> sentiments that I've heard uh, growing up that were perpetuated not necessarily by uh just our community and it was certainly perpetuated by pe members of our community you said well i don't want a black doctor you know things of that nature well why don't you want a black doctor well because they're not trained well and some of that was based off of historically the only college that you could go to was a black medical college and uh, that's not to say that those doctors who came out of there um weren't well trained they very they very much were but the general mentality of the the mentality of the general population was that if it's black it's inferior <coughs> and that's what people have been taught for most of their lives to expect it to be inferior if it's black i will say that as a owner of a black business interestingly the people who's let me first say this I find that people seek me out because I'm a black doctor. And so I start seeing a lot of patients who come to see, say, I was looking for a black ENT doctor in the city. And when they come in, they're so proud to see that, hey, I'm a black doctor. Even those who weren't um, <clears throat> looking specifically for a black doctor. When I walk in the room, a lot of times you can see their countenance change a little bit. They're like, oh, <laughs> a black doctor. <laughs> I, sometimes I think it's just because they look at me and be like, "Ooh, he is so fine." But uh, those <laughs> are usually just you and say, "I don't need to say that." <laughs> <laughs> right? Usually, those are the sixty or seventy-year-old ladies who say that, or sixty plus. But <laughs> but in any case, they you can see that their countenance change a little bit because they're pleased to see that, and or surprised to see that their doctor is black, and so they are. Uh, a bit more committed as patients to come back because they have a black doctor. They're proud to have a black ENT doctor. Uh, I see that a lot. I see that a lot more frequently <coughs> than I see um, the thing that I that I really despise more, and that is that people have a lower threshold um, of tolerance when it comes to a black black business. People will say, you know, I tried to give them a chance, but they messed up one time. But you go through the other place and they can mess up multiple, multiple, multiple times and you still keep coming back. But immediately, because it happened one time in the black business, you just dismiss it and say, this is what I expected. So that mentality still persists. I see it less frequently than the former that I mentioned. The other thing that I've noticed is that as a black employer, um, or an owner of a black business that the employees that seem to be most loyal to me are the black ones. The ones that seem to put forth the most effort and, and, and commitment to the success of the practice 
are the black ones. The ones that stay with me the longest are the black ones. And it's not because, you know, I treat them any differently or it's not because I give them any favor. I think it's more that they take ownership. They take part ownership to say, I'm a part of this successful black business. And the ones that, and my office manager pointed this out to me the other week. She was like, the ones that have left and have caused problems in the leaving were generally white people. And 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 I said, I don't think that that's the case. It's probably just by nature of their profession and, and you know, their job titles or anything. They became a little bit more difficult to replace at this point. Um, and I tried to find all other kinds of excuses for it. But the reality of it was she was right. The ones who have been faithful and the ones who have been loyal to this practice have been black. So now you walk in my office. You see mostly black people in the office. And, and for a period of time, interestingly, I got a little worried about that. I said, so what are white people thinking when they walk into my office? Are they feeling uncomfortable? Once I got a uh, call back from one of my referring physicians, and this is when my office was pretty much all black. One of the referring physicians said, you know, hey, I've had a couple of patients come back and, you know, not be happy with your office at some point. I just thought I'd let you know that. And uh, I'd asked him specifically, I said, so did they did they point anything particular out? They said, no, not really. They just said they just didn't really feel comfortable there or that wasn't, they just wanted another doctor and they would never elaborate. And, you know, that was code. I understood it to mean, well, I just don't really feel right here. That means that you're a minority in my office. You're white and you're experiencing what it feels like to be a minority and it makes you uncomfortable. I get that. And I'm not sure if, we should uh, play to play into that necessarily. If it's our responsibility to also help people who are minorities in our office when they come into our office, white people come into our office, feel more comfortable about being in a place full of black people. You're getting excellent service. You come in there. You're going to get treated respectfully, professionally, and compassionately. You're going to get everything you could possibly want. And now I have to placate your insecurities about being a white person surrounded by black people. There are some people that are like that. I don't know if that's my responsibility. It had been one of my focuses to make sure that I do include or have a diverse staff. I'm wondering whether or not I should do that anymore. As an employment law attorney. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm always going to say don't discriminate against you know, people of a uh based on race, regardless of, of that. But but to me, that then works both ways. I mean, don't discriminate against a qualified Black applicant because you're worried that, hey, it's going to mess up my white um, customers that white come balance. in because I've already got, <laughs> I've already got a majority my, Black staff. I said my white balance <laughs> is off right now. So. <laughs> you know, uh, but also don't hire the white person because you want an all-Black staff. But I think that that's it's part of the question, and I know there's probably some nuisance that's going to keep going back to the NFL, but that's part of some of the criticism that comes when talking about these losses is, okay, people should have the right and the prerogative to hire who they want to. And if they're more comfortable being around people that they've grown up with, then why are we forcing them to hire a minority just to placate um, the, the sentiments of the, of the minority? And again, yes, as a minority, of course, I'm going to find that very, you know, offensive. But when we, one, there is this presumption that by virtue of my skin color alone, we cannot work together or you can't find comfort in working with me. Um, but also in that becomes a, again, you're comfortable when there are 70% of the players on the field. But somehow when it comes to the <laughs> executive responsibilities are being in that ownership room where we need to talk about the rights and the um, interests and, and some of the opinions of or complaints of those players. You don't want anyone representing them in that room. That has to be a problem. And I know one of the viewers mentioned that, okay, well, we as, as people in the minority or marginalized communities should fight against the NFL or make sure or force them to propel anyone that gets the opportunity as a black head coach or whatever to ensure that that person stays. Uh, but again, you're asking us who have very little 
bargaining power when it comes to 32 white owners who have done this for years and have passed this down for generations to generations to then expect that even one of us is going to have a big influence is, is a lot. And one of the things that I think we've often said here is that one person then is also responsible for being excellent, not just qualified, but excellent. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you have to be, you know, near Jesus, which we know is virtually impossible. Uh, and even he still got crucified. Um, and so in that, you know, we're not allowing an opportunity for someone to still be able to get a second chance. And I know that's something that's brought up repeatedly in the lawsuit too, is that a lot of the head coaches who even have winning seasons aren't offered a second opportunity to be a head coach for another team. Then again, you're, you're teaching our generation, you're setting our generations up for failure too, and even in that regard. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the deal. We we had Marvin Lewis, for example, who, while we're talking about football weekends here, uh, <laughs> who has been the head coach for Cincinnati Bengals for probably way too long, I think they said. <laughs> Not way too long. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who wanted him gone for a long time, but for I, it was something like 15 years or something like that. He was the head coach for for uh, football, I mean, for the Bengals. And there were a lot of people calling for his dismissal. But I, I, I don't understand why he stayed on so long or, or why, he, why he managed to do that, especially being a person of color. It seems like if you have poor performance like that for such a long period of time that they might more readily be willing to get rid of you. And maybe somebody who understands football a lot more than I do can chime in and let us let us know why they kept Marvin Lewis for so long. Well, if this lawsuit continues, that will be a question that has to be asked because he's <laughs> definitely making the claim. He's making the disparate treatment claim, which under the law means that white people are the majority is being treated better than someone else because of their race. But they they mentioned Reggie McKenzie was the general manager of the Raiders, won as the NFL executive of the year in 2016, but yet four years later was fired. And the person that came on a white guy not only did not win but also hired less black people and players and lost um, fewer numbers but yet continues to be in that position um he uses tony dungeon tony dungy uh, was let go from tampa Bay despite a winning season coach steve wilkes let go from arizona after one year um and granted it wasn't a successful year but the next person that came on um also didn't have a successful year and was able to stay um, Coach Jim Caldwell fired despite a winning season at Detroit. Coach David Foley fired after uh, one season over philosophical differences. <laughs> and, that, and I think that's something, too, that because, I mean, he's arguing that um, the Miami fired him because he was not collaborative. And then you're like, okay, is that code for he doesn't think like me? <laughs> he, he relied too much on his experience as a marginalized person and we just can't get along in that regard um so i mean that that's a very problematic reason when you start using those words does it fit the organization is it collaborative does it have the same philosophical um affiliation as i do and so so to your question so those questions are going to have to be answered why does one person get multiple chances despite not being excellent on the first try but the next person who, even if successful, doesn't get multiple chances as the other person, they're going to yeah. have answers. And, and, but that's, yep. again, assuming they get the class. And that's and I, I keep emphasizing that because I think it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Forrest to get a, enough people to, to get this entered as a class action. But you say that uh, we don't have the power in the NFL because we're not owners there. But if 70% of the players are black that sounds like a heck of a lot of powers and so it seems that we should put some of the should we put some of the onus on the nfl players to demand more when when uh unions and companies are not treating their employees properly 
and they want change, guess what happens? The the employees go on strike. The employees are the ones who actually motivate the uh, change from the from the department heads or from the the leadership of the company. And unless the employees demand better, the leaders will not of their own volition perform better or to offer better. And and I get it. Sometimes they 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 don't do it just because they become complacent and they may recognize well if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You only find out that it's broken when people start making noise. You only find out that the wheel is rusty when it starts squeaking. And and if the wheel doesn't squeak, a lot of times, unless you're just on top of it and always routinely putting WD-40 on it, it's going to not get the attention that it needs to have. And maybe maybe some of these NFL players need to start squeaking a little bit to get a little oil put on and, and see some change made. I, I will say to that question, because I do, I do think the NBA is much better than the NFL when it comes to the unity of players. Because I know when they went on strike several years ago, the players actually who weren't making as much um, was getting help from players who did make a lot and could continue to help out some of the players that weren't receiving money. Because again, you go on strike, that means you're, you're, you're to some degree maybe breaching your contract and you're not getting paid. Um, but also to what you're saying, because again, we're talking about the integration, at least according to the lawsuit, didn't happen until the 1940s. So from that standpoint, black people are like, oh, okay, now we're, we're integrated, problem solved. Not realizing that. Um, no, there, there may be another problem. But then we see the other problem. Like I said, the, the rooting rule comes out. Um, but even during that gap, I'm sure they were like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll throw in a, a, a Black assistant coach position or a Black assistant quarter, um, coordinator position. Or we'll start recruiting at the HBCUs. And so you're thinking, okay, change is happening. It's slowly, but at least it's better than what we have previously. And so everything's okay. Um, and like I said, the Rooney Rule comes out in 2000. So then they're like, okay, so they've done something. They put on this Rooney Rule. We're good. Kaepernick happens. Then they, you know, we, we said, hey, we're going to stop looking at the NFL for a minute. Everyone did kind of pause. The NFL acknowledged, okay, we messed up. We're going to settle this thing with Colin. And we're going to bring in Jay-Z and the rest of them to help us be better. <laughs> and then we say, okay, now we'll watch it again. And so then the Brian Flores comes out. And so I, I, told this, I say that to say, until we have made notice, and yes, we're thinking everything is okay. I would have liked so much more if some of the players, especially when Colin Kaepernick happened, if particularly all the black players just took a knee at every game. That would have, I mean, can you imagine them all over saying, okay, you know what, we're going to do this? How powerful that would have been. But I also, I guess I can empathize, and I only say empathize with that I can understand. If you're over here like, okay, my employer is telling me, as Jerry Jones made, made very clear, <laughs> I, I will make sure my players are in line. Like, your job will be on the line. And, and even now... Hard then, master. <laughs> He's a hard master, I tell you that much. <laughs> that means you think you got that million-dollar contract. Take that knee. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't mind. I can handle the lawsuit because I'm a you know trillionaire over here. Can you handle the lawsuit? Uh, even if your rights are being violated. And from that standpoint, that's why I started the earlier, we don't have as a community the decades and decades and decades of wealth to support someone who is trying to make a stand in, in just one industry. Because again, we've got several industries in which there are problems. And so, you know, to, to pool our resources for one, limits our resource for other industries. Um, and, and I know that I'm not saying that gives us a pass to be passive, but I just think that's something that we keep in mind when we're trying to be very heavily critical of even how we respond. Maybe it all boils down to the fact that we all need to get out there and be actively black. So (laughs) this is Black History Month. Get out there and be actively black. Don't be passively black, y'all. Be actively black. Make it happen for somebody else. But because we'll be continuing it, if you're checking this out, please comment. If you've got some questions that you want us to address or some more issues or stories that you want us to bring out during this month, put them in the comment section. We love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can catch us every Saturday right here, 11 a.m. Eastern time, 10 a.m. Central Standard time. Also, you can catch us on Apple, that other podcast platform. (laughs) (laughs) And right here on Facebook. So until then, thanks so much for tuning in. Oh, <laughs>
This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.